0: and welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm Flavia Munn, Editor of Nursing Standard and I'm here with my colleague, Senior Nurse Editor Richard Hatchett. Hi Richard.
1: Hi Flavia, hi everyone, good to be back as ever.
0: Good to have you, as we say every episode. So, 2020 is the International Year of the Nurse and Midwife, and it's also the bicentenary of Florence Nightingale's birth. Now, obviously, this has been somewhat overshadowed by COVID-19, but the pandemic has highlighted the value of nursing more than ever, and also infection prevention measures such as hand hygiene. So, Richard has been speaking to the author Mark Bostrich, who has written a biography of Miss Nightingale, and Penguin, has reprinted his book for the 200th anniversary of her birth. So Richard, can you tell us what are the links between what Mark's book discusses and what we're seeing today?
1: Well, I think you can look at this from a macro and a micro perspective, Flavia. And you'll hear in Mark's interview dotted throughout these links to the relevance to today's nursing and healthcare. So on a macro level, here was a woman who found herself in testing in adverse times, which we certainly are at the moment. Um, also, he brings in this concept of healthcare care for all, which he argues she was passionate about. And then at the micro level, aspects, uh, as you said, such as hand hygiene, disease prevention, consideration of the needs of the individual patient. So all of these links are relevant to today. And I think the links are stronger than you'd imagine.
0: Thank you. Well, let's take a listen to the interview with Mark.
1: Mark Bostridge is an award-winning writer known for his historical biographies. His first book with Paul Berry focused on another woman associated with nursing, Vera Brittain, A Life. His works include Letters from a Lost Generation with Alan Bishop, Because You Died, a selection of Vera Brittain's First World War poetry and prose, and Fateful Year, a portrait of England in 1914. Florence Nightingale, the woman and her legend, explores her life in a volume of some 700 pages and was the first major biography of Nightingale in over 50 years. The Sunday Times described it as brilliant, moving and masterly. The Evening Standard as a full scholarly and compelling authoritative biography. While the Observer said it's hard to imagine one that brings her hard driven brilliance back to life with such intelligence, imagination and sympathy. Well, welcome, Mark. Thank you for joining me on the Nursing Standard podcast. The question I've always wanted to ask you is... Um, Florence Nightingale was an inveterate writer of, of letters and correspondence and so forth. Uh, so I imagine there's a huge amount of material related to her, probably generated by her. How on earth yeah. did you manage to bring her back to life with so much material over such a large um, uh, number of resources?
2: Well, yes, you're right. I mean, a conservative estimate said there's something like 14,000. Letters from Nightingale in existence, and I'm sure that's a severe underestimate. Um, so it was always very um, off-putting when I let me put it that way when I started, um, and in fact for a couple of years I I found it just so overwhelming that I decided I wasn't going to do it and I was going to write something else. Um, the problem with Florence Nightingale is that although there are, had been other biographies, obviously. There hadn't been a proper, properly documented one. In other words, there wasn't a biography before mine where you could go to a quotation from something Nightingale had written and find out where it came from because there were no annotations. Um, the thing that really brought the subject alive to me in the end was going to Claydon House, to the archive there, which um, was the house uh, where Florence Nightingale's sister Parthenope lived. Parthenope, Nightingale, married um, Sir Harry Verney, and went to live at Claydon House, which you can still visit. It belongs to the National Trust. Um, And Nightingale spent a lot of time there in the latter part of her life. And what Claydon has is the most extraordinary archive of not only Nightingale letters about her family, but also, also letters from other members of her family about Nightingale. And that was what really gave a different perspective, that everything that I took in wasn't necessarily coming from Nightingale herself. It was often written by people who'd known her very well, um, writing about her. And that that brought a whole new dimension to the subject, which was very exciting. And had it not been for that, I don't think I'd ever got through everything.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about her background and perhaps how that shaped her future endeavours, for those who, who don't know her roots, really?
2: She was born in May 1820 on the outskirts of Florence, where her parents were on their honeymoon tour of Europe after the Napoleonic Wars. They had a daughter who'd been born in Naples the previous year, Parthenope, hence her name. Um, And Florence Nightingale was born in Florence and brought back to her father's Derbyshire estates when she was about a year old. And her family lived in Derbyshire during um, the three summer months. And for the rest of the time, they lived in a very large house in Embley. which is now a school Um, and West Wellow is where Florence Nightingale is buried and that's not far away. Florence Nightingale was given a very good education by her father. Her father had been at Cambridge and so she studied a lot of what um, a man of the era would have studied. She also early on showed um, a gift for mathematics um, and in Her late teens, early 20s, she had a special tutor for mathematics. The other really important influence, I suppose, on her early life is her religious philosophy, which she was formulating um, during her 20s. Because basically, Florence Nightingale's attitude in all her work is underpinned by an understanding that the world is governed by God's laws, and it's up for human, up to humankind to find out how those laws operate, and when those laws break down again, it's for mankind to step in and see what has gone wrong. So, in other words, it's a it's an active rather than a, than a contemplative life. And when Florence Nightingale was 16, she received what she believed to be a call to God's service, and for a number of years she didn't know how to interpret this. But by the mid 1840s, in other words when she was in her early 20s, she had decided that her vocation was to be nursing. The problem was that nursing was not a respectable occupation for a woman of Nightingale's class. And therefore she had a struggle for a number of years with her family who wouldn't initially allow her to have any kind of training. Does that mean that
1: her attitude to nursing, her philosophy of nursing, is shaped, as you said, by God's laws, um, uh, both in her life and in her nursing, that the nursing role
2: was to uh, create some kind of balance with those laws? According to Nightingale, um, a good nurse has a good character. Mm -hmm. And in the context of the 19th century, that means she has a good religious character. You could argue that the religious uh, emphasis of Nightingale's um, idea of nursing is so strong that it it puts many candidates off uh, in the 20th century say or as time goes on but I suppose the application of Nightingale's philosophy to nursing is primarily empirical, in other words, observation Observing the patient is the most important thing of all. And, and that is one of, for instance, one of the most important chapters in her best-selling Guide to Notes on Nursing, published in 1859, which is, is really um, directed at people looking after um, individuals at home, because, of course, most people were looked after at home and not in hospitals. So I wonder, Mark, how was she drawn into the nursing issue in the Crimea? Well, after a long struggle with her family, she was finally allowed to pursue this vocation for nursing. And she looked at hospitals, hospital conditions and nursing methods in Germany and in France, as well as hospitals in, in Britain and in Ireland, actually. But finally, in 1853, she broke away from her family and became Superintendent of the Establishment for Gentlewomen During Illness, which was a small um, hospital nursing home for, as it says, distressed gentlewomen in Harley Street. Um, and she was there when the Crimean War broke out. The reason, primary reason she went off to Scutari and then to the Crimea was her connection with Sydney Herbert, who was the Secretary of State at War. The British government decided to send out nurses um, to, to the war zone so because of the outcry at home and the lack of care that soldiers were receiving because, as everybody knows, the Crimean War was a different kind of war because the reporting, photography, drawing, newspaper correspondents sending uh, reports home brought the British public um, a greater knowledge of, of of the war than had been true of earlier wars. So there was an outcry about the nursing and the British government um, decided for the first time that there should be an official introduction of women nursing staff into a war zone. And Florence and Sidney Herbert knew that Nightingale had all this expertise and he chose her and so in October 1854 Florence Nightingale went to Scutari in Turkey with the first tranche of 38 nurses. Uh, In the next uh, three years there would be something like 228 women who officially went out to the Crimean War. Of course there were a lot of others who did uh, did so unofficially. Why did she have so much influence Mark, certainly subsequently? Because from 1855 this extraordinary legend starts to grow up around her name. So while she's still out in at Scutarian and in the Crimea um, in Britain, there's this swell of adoration for her, turning into a, her into a kind of plaster saint. She had undoubtedly given nurses um, a new status by what she was doing um, in the Crimean War. And when she came home, She knew how to use her power as a legend to influence government ministers to make the sanitary and nursing public health reforms that were necessary. Uh, One of the important things to understand about her her time um, in the Crimean War was that the terrible uh, deaths uh, in the hospitals there, in both Scutari and in the Crimea, Um, whereby soldiers were dying, many, many more soldiers were dying from disease than were dying from battle wounds was due to the murderous sanitary disasters of the hospitals. So, for instance, cholera cases were being sent to overcrowded wards, Um, the hospitals themselves had had a lack of drainage and ventilation Um, so, for instance, the barrack hospital which was Nightingale's own particular responsibility was built over a sewer. So all these things came to a head um, and in the first winter of the war there was a terrible mortality rate of something like 42%. After the spring of 1855 that drops dramatically to about 2%. Um, Nightingale herself has made the link between filth and disease though she didn't yet understand the theory that that was based on. so the emphasis is on cleaning, on on cleaning surfaces, on making sure soldiers have clean clothing and clean bed linen and so so, so on and so forth. She did come much later to accept germ theory um, in the mid-1880s when much of the rest of the medical profession did Um, and one of the irritating things one comes across time and again by people who should know better um, is the idea that she never accepted germ theory but she did Um, And the point about the Crimean War is that, yes, her emphasis on cleanliness made an enormous difference. But what really um, reduced the terrible mortality rate was the British government's decision um, in March 1855 to send out a sanitary commission which flushed out the sewers underneath the hospitals and dramatically reduced the mortality rate there. And Nightingale realised the effectiveness of this sanitary work and it formed the foundation of her work in public health for the rest of her life.
1: So you've touched on some of her achievements there Mark, Um, can you expand on that? What actually do you think she achieved as she was obviously so much more than just a nurse?
2: What she was was one of the great administrative minds of the 19th century Um, and she achieved reforms across the public health arena in India in the Empire as well as in Britain and much of this work was founded on assembling statistical data and devising policy solutions from her analysis of this data and she has become more famous now and she has become better known now for her visual presentation of the data for instance Um, on the mortality rates of of soldiers in in the Crimean War, through her coxcomb, or her pie chart. Um, This she considered to be more arresting than the the line graphs that were were common then, because it it presents in a very arresting manner um, the data in visual form and really makes you see, for instance, that more soldiers were dying from disease than from wounds during the war. So, what happened after the Crimea so when she returns from the Crimean War in the summer of eighteen fifty six her primary objective is to get a Royal Commission on the Health of the Army set up. She wants to ensure that soldiers are better treated in peacetime and wartime than they have been previously. She also becomes an come, she also becomes an expert on hospital architecture uh, people from around the world ask her opinions about hospitals and and the sanitary conditions. Of hospitals, um, and her emphasis is on the pavilion model, like St. Thomas's Hospital, which is the kind of figurehead hospital which was opened in 1871 with its pavilions of air and use of natural light. In 1860, her nursing school at St. Thomas's was opened, the first secular nurse training school. Um, around the same time, a little earlier, Notes on Nursing was published. Which became a bestseller for civilian care. Um, a midwifery ward was opened at King's College Hospital, uh, which had to close because of the mortality rate from puerperal fever. Um, they still hadn't taken on board Semmelweis' um, hand washing ideas. Later, her work centered on health promotion as well as disease prevention. So, in that sense, she, she's very modern.
1: So moving on from more of the facts, Mark, do you think a lot of misconceptions have been built up around Nightingale? And if so,
2: why? I think there are two main reasons for why we haven't really understood her properly. Um, The first is her own decision to go into seclusion when she returned from the war. So she worked away from the public spotlight, partly because she thought as a woman that was necessary that she was better off influencing politicians from behind the scenes, um, partly because of course she was ill. So she largely worked in private, so people didn't really know what she was doing. Um, and when, towards the end of her life, she was given the order of merit, people were astonished that she was still alive. They just seemed that she would died years before. The other reason I think we misunderstand her is, is what she herself referred to as the, the ministering angel nonsense. Um, the idea that she was just this figure of legend floating um, among soldiers' bedside mopping brows she she thought that the public really wouldn't understand the complexity of her work um, and I think that that's had an unfortunate um, effect on impact on our later understanding of her. People still don't really understand that her most important work was done after the war that Many of the lessons she learned from the disaster of the Crimean War contributed to to the work she did in nursing and in public health more generally. Um, but it's, it's really important to understand what she does post-1856 to practically the end of her life, 1910. I mean, she's still working in the last decade of her life. The other reason I think... Um, that we have misunderstood her is because I think there's still a widespread misogynistic attitude towards intellectually powerful women whose primary aim in life is not connected to men or children.
1: We have to mention the belief that she was in bed for years and years, Mark. Is that true? And um, why? And what did she do from this bed? Because she seems to have remained quite influential.
2: So if we'd been talking about Florence Nightingale 100 years ago, we would probably have said she suffered from neurasthenia, um, that her illness wasn't an organic disease, even that she was a malingerer, that she pretended she was ill in order to keep people at a distance, particularly her family, in order that she could do her work. But then in the 1990s, um, David Young of the Wellcome Institute came up with a very compelling um, explanation of Nightingale's condition, which I think, as far as we we can know, and of course posthumous diagnoses are are practically impossible, but it, it seems to hold water. And that is the idea that she suffered from chronic brucellosis, probably picked up from drinking infected milk in the Crimea. And this illness, which really dominated her life from 1857 for practically the next 30 years, involved palpitations, shortness of breath, depression, and crippling spondylitis, which made it impossible for her to move. She often had to be carried across um, the room. She spent a lot of time on sofas, but um, also a lot of time in bed. And of course, what is so extraordinary about Florence Nightingale is that although she was seriously ill, she worked harder than any of us can imagine anybody doing in good health. I mean she wrote constantly to spur people on, to get government ministers to carry out significant reforms Um, and so you look at her letters and sometimes you'll find she's writing at four o'clock in the morning before the rest of London is awake. Um, It's a constant rate of productivity. In the last um, couple of decades of her life she comes out of seclusion slightly um, and the disease the really um, hardest uh, impact of the disease falls off so she's able to to move more but it does dominate her life for for a long time one of the things i learned from looking at her family archive is that people like her father to whom she was very close were in no doubt that she was in danger in the 1860s of dying from from her disease, that she was actually very seriously ill.
1: What was the relationship like between Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole? Did they meet?
2: Did they get on? I wonder what your thoughts were there. Yes, there's such a lot of misinformation out there about the relationship between the two women. According to Seacole's account in her autobiography, they did meet um, when Seacole um, was in the Crimea and, and Nightingale was there too, and Nightingale arranged for Seacole to have a bed there for the night. Alexis Soyer, you know, the chef who who um, made culinary um, reforms to the diets of soldiers in the Crimea, said that Nightingale spoke very well of, of Seacole during the war. And then when I was writing my biography, I found evidence that Nightingale contributed to um, the fund um, when Seacole went bankrupt after the war. So undoubtedly, she thought well of her. I think the problem is that Uh, Seacole's significance has been blown out of all proportion. Um, The two women really aren't comparable. I mean, Nightingale is a pioneer, nurse and public health reformer. Seacole was a very benevolent businesswoman. Business was primarily what she was interested in. She was in the Crimea to set up a hotel. While she was there, she generously looked after some soldiers. She wasn't on uh, the battlefields with bullets whizzing past her ears, as has been suggested. It's untrue to say that Nightingale obstructed uh, Seacole from going to the Crimean War. Nightingale wasn't in England at that time, and the selection process was carried out by other people. Nightingale was certainly never racist. Um, She was very open to all creeds and colours, and that actually is what marks her out as as being very unusual during the Victorian period. The only regrettable thing, I think, about the unveiling of the statue of Seacole was its sighting, that it was unveiled at The site of the training, um, nurse training school, which Nightingale opened, which is a a really important site um, in the history of nursing in this country. And of course, Seacole had no connection with hospital nursing or with British hospitals. So, finally,
1: what do you think Nightingale's legacy and influence is today?
2: I think I'd want to um, just centre on two main things that I think are very important. one is um, the idea of health care as a human right. Long before the foundation of the National Health Service, Nightingale, for the last 30 years of her working life, so from, say, from the 1860s to the 1890s, was introducing trained nurses into the workhouses. Before her reforms, sick paupers were cared for by other sick paupers. So it's a very important innovation, introducing proper trained nursing care into workhouses to care for the sick. And by doing this, Nightingale was signalling that however poor you were, you should still receive proper health care. And I think one of uh, the things that we don't often pay enough attention to is that Nightingale is an important progenitor of the National Health Service in this country and should be celebrated as such. Um, The other idea is a a much simpler one, much much simpler one, and that is um, that in Notes on Nursing, which reached a lot of households in, in the 1860s and went on being reprinted for the rest of the century, Nightingale makes the point about the importance of washing hands. So she says, she writes, every nurse ought to be careful to wash her hands very frequently during the day. If her face too, so much the better. And of course, that's something as we face um, a new virus that we should all pay attention to. Mark Bostridge, thank you very much indeed.
0: Well, thanks very much to Mark and also to Richard. That was a really fascinating interview with lots of intriguing points raised and areas also for further debate.
1: Yes, I agree. That that has always been the joy of history for me. You're trying to reconstruct um, events and people when you weren't there. So there'll always be different viewpoints and different areas for debate. And I think that that is the good thing about our profession and also history.
0: Absolutely. And of course, listeners can share their thoughts either via the story connected to this podcast, which they can find at rcni.com forward slash podcast, or you can make your feedback on social media. And as always, all the relevant links to this episode of the show and the series so far can be found at rcni.com forward slash podcast. Thank you very much for listening.